week, the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs is talking about aquaponic food production. Are the possibilities endless? Aquaponics a wonderful little. There's a wonderful aquaponics project at the college. It's it's just amazing. If you've ever been there, it's well worth going. And we're going to have Nick Savadov. Uh, he's a professor, a senior research scientist with Lethbridge College, internationally recognized expert in aquaponics, and they grow great stuff. There's even a, a couple of local businesses that utilize it. And following Nick's presentation next week, I've just been told, um, Prairie Fisherman Corporation is providing an opportunity for SACPOM members. Is that members only? That's everybody. Okay, so SACPOM members and everybody to visit a developing aquaponics facility nearby. Tilapia fish are being produced there, which are shipped to a Vancouver market. A large greenhouse is under construction. You can go on that tour. It looks like fun. Driving instructions, oh my goodness. Do I, you want me to read the driving instructions? They can look it up on the website. The, the driving instructions will be available. It's not that hard to find. So that's next week from noon to 1.30, and then afterwards, just a wonderful little tour once you drive into the country. Knud's got room in his car. All right, I hope everybody thought of some really good questions for, for Harold Jansen to, to really hit him hard. Don't, don't go easy on him, okay? Uh, you know, find out what that, that, you know, attractive shirtless moose riding prime minister is up to. Um, we're we're going to open the microphone. Harold's got a couple of announcements before that. So he's just going to plug a couple of events that are coming on the on this end of town. Easy to get to. Here he is. So the two events I wanted to invite you to, the Department of Political Science, uh, one of my colleagues has a new book out on uh, friendship and politics. It's literally been a decade in the ma uh, making. And he's going to be holding a book launch a week from today, so next week, Thursday night, between 6 and 9 p.m. at the Penny Building on 5th Street. So we'd like to invite you all to come. And uh, the formal part's at 7 o'clock, but if you'd like to, uh, we're going to celebrate some of the research we've been doing. And the other talk that I wanted to alert you to, because I think it would be of interest to a lot of people here, on October 27th at 7 p.m., also at the Penny Building on 5th Street, we're going to have uh, Professor Ken Carty, who is the retired chair of the Political Science Department at the University of British Columbia, and he's going to be talking about whether the Liberal Party is really Canada's natural governing party. He has a new book out on the Liberal Party, or it's about a year old now. Uh, he's Canada's foremost expert on political parties, fabulous speaker, terrific human being, and I'd really encourage you all to come because he's never been here. He's very excited about the invitation, so that's something our department's putting on that I'd like to encourage you all to attend. So thanks, look forward to your questions. Hello, my name is Heather Oxman. I'm wondering what recommendations you would have to us about um, making proportional representation uh, more possible, um, what actions we could take um, to make proportional representation a more likely possibility. And uh, just as an aside, I know that in Alberta tonight or today sometime, the federal consultation committee is meeting in Leduc today. Yep. So they're going around, but today is too late really for us to make a submission to them from Alberta. So if you have recommendations on actions we could take 
to make proportional representation more of a possibility unappreciated. Okay, so there's there's two things. One, uh, if you care about this and want to see a change, is to let the committee know that you support change. Like I said, popular discontent is not has not been driving that process. But if you are upset over the way the system works and don't think your vote counts very much, I think that's uh, one way is to let people know. Often it's a pretty quiet um, minority. The second thing I've noticed and I've observed in the electoral reform community as I've studied over the last, uh, well, it just dawned on me 25 years. That's a little bit of a stunning revelation. Uh, anyway, the last 25 years I've been watching the electoral reform community. What's really struck me is it's often internally divided. And there's a big divide between people who want the single transferable vote system versus the mixed member proportional system. And they fight a lot and they disagree a lot with each other. Um, and I think coming around one alternative would actually be very helpful. So the New Zealand case, we were talking about it a little bit over the table at lunch. Is, it's a very odd sort of, there's a lot of interesting and some actually kind of funny things that happened that led to that. Um, and, uh, but one of the things the electoral reform community did there is they all came around the mixed member proportional model. They put aside, the people who wanted single transferable votes said, okay, that's our first choice, but we'd much rather have the mixed member system over what we've got over the single member plurality system. And there had been a royal commission that had recommended it. And most of the commissions that have studied electoral reform at the federal level have settled on an MMP system, but there is a stubborn faction that wants STV or nothing. And those internal divisions, I think, are harmful because it's a tough enough argument to make and to explain to people and to convince to people, but when you can't even agree on what the alternative is, it's hard to make the argument for change. So I think putting aside some of those internal differences I think would be very helpful. That's a good question. Thank you, Heather. Uh, Art Sanford, and uh, thank you very much for your present presentation, Harold. It's quite interesting, and I have worked in the system for years and been elected several times. But, you know, I can't help but think that if you were to have a referendum today and all the question would be, ask your federal government, do you trust them to change the system? That would be probably one of the poorest referendums ever uh, the majority would be very, very low. <laughs> the question I have is, and working in the election, this system, one, two, three, four, and that, I was amazed when we were running the voting system, how many people did not understand how that worked. If you're going to have a, a change in the system, it's got to be a system that people understand. And the one refer in the alternatives you showed, there's one alternative there you did not speak to at all, and it, I think it's fairly popular in Hispanic countries and they have an election identically the way we do it today. And if you do not get 50% of the vote, we have another run in two weeks' time with only the two top people. You're guaranteed that everybody sitting in your legislature or your parliament have a majority of at least 50% or better. I wonder if you might address that. Sure. Um, so thank you. Both very good points. The first point about lack of understanding and is, is a huge issue, and I'd argue the timeline that Justin Trudeau set in that promise is very unrealistic. I, I completely agree with you. Although we might think the one, two, three, four, how hard is that? But it's a big change from what we've done. It's different than what we do at the provincial level. It's different than what we do at the local level. So the education process needs to be huge around this. And those tight timelines that Justin Trudeau inadvertently set 
make that very, very difficult. So I'd personally be more comfortable if we were looking at this over a period of doing this 10 years rather than to try to squeeze this into four. So I agree with that. The runoff system uh, that you mentioned has been, I've only ever seen it suggested once in Canada. And the reason it doesn't get suggested as often is it tends to be used in countries with a French colonial background. In France, they use this. If nobody uh, has a majority, all the candidates who got at least 22.5% of the vote carry on to the second ballot. The reason that it doesn't seem to be as favored in Canada is the argument is it's tough enough to get people to vote out once. To get them to do it twice in a couple of weeks might be difficult, and that's, that's the concern that the alternative vote basically does the same thing, but you only have to show up once. Uh, but you're right, that is an alternative. I just didn't include it because it's just generally not one that's been routinely recommended in the Canadian case. And thanks, thanks for the questions and comments. Uh, Trevor Page. Harold, um, in countries that have moved from first past the post to um, proportional uh, representation, or one, one form of it, or the other, and they've made that move several years ago. What is the experience that we know about in terms of voter satisfaction or public satisfaction or dissatisfaction with the change? Was one question. The other one was having made the change, does that has, does the experience show that it results in an easier or a more difficult way in terms of passing legislation, or is that just issue-driven and it has no real effect? So, the effect. What do voters think? Or what does the public think about it after it's happened? And how much easier is it to govern with it for governments? Okay, both, both very good uh, very good questions. Thank you, uh, Trevor. So there haven't, like I said, electoral system change does not happen routinely. Uh, it's quite uncommon. So the best example we have would be New Zealand. It would be the closest comparator because New Zealand has a parliamentary system like Canada. The big difference is they're not a federal state like we are. Um, and in New Zealand, it was interesting because, well, I'll just tell you the, the whole New Zealand story. Uh, quickly, but um, so in New Zealand it was funny because the electoral reform debate, people were mad at political parties. There was low satisfaction with them. They were satisfied with both of the main parties and there was some discussion of electoral reform, but one of the party leaders during the, during the election debate misread his briefing notes. His briefing notes said no referendum on electoral reform and he promised a referendum on electoral reform because he misread his notes. Well, then the other party leader said, oh, if you, we'll do it too, right? So then they got in and they had to do it. So again, it's the kind of thing you promise in opposition, then you have to deliver on. So they think, okay, we don't really want electoral reform. We have to do it. So they thought, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give so many choices on the ballot that the alternatives will be fragmented. But the electoral reform community coalesced around the mixed member proportional system, as, as I mentioned. And it ended up winning that first referendum. So then they had a second runoff. So then they said, okay, we'll have another runoff between um, the uh, first-past-the-post system and the MMP system, and MMP won. So New Zealand did this change. So what happened in terms of public satisfaction? Well, then the government also said, okay, after we change, after we've done this for a couple of elections, we're going to have another referendum to give people a chance to go back. 
But citizens at that point, no, they kind of liked the new system, and so they kept it. So generally what we find is that public satisfaction with government is driven by a whole bunch of things. Um, generally we find that proportional representation systems, countries perform pretty well, but there are many countries that use other systems that do just as well. So it seems to be driven by a lot of things. There is a project right now being done by Pippa Norris out of Harvard University called the Electoral Integrity Project, and she's recently published some findings and made the argument that it would actually see higher levels of electoral integrity under PR systems, that they tend to run cleaner elections, less corruption, and that increases voter satisfaction. So there is a little bit of evidence around that. As far as difficulties in governing, um, the switch to going from single party majorities to coalition governments is something that Canadians view with a bit of trepidation because it's unusual and strange for us. Uh, you, I'm sure, all remember the 2008 coalition crisis that we all went through where we suggested that this might be a possibility and a lot of people just went ballistic over this. So there have been a lot of comparative studies of performances of governments under coalition PR and they do just as well. There is no evidence that they govern less well and in fact on a few measures they actually do a little bit better. And generally what the research finds is that those coalition governments tend to do what we call the median voter. So if we were to line up all the voters if you could imagine this, if we take all the voters in Canada, line them up from left to right, what they think in terms of their political attitudes, they will, PR countries tend to govern closer to what that middle voter wants. And that's normatively important because the argument is that that middle voter would always win a majority, right? Because, uh, so the evidence suggests that it tends to be a little more in tune with what the public wants. So comparatively, there's not a lot of evidence. We can point to countries and there's always, People always use the examples of Italy and Israel are always thrown up as these very fragmented countries, but we don't often talk about the Scandinavian countries or the Netherlands or other countries that are pretty stable, governed very efficiently and effectively with coalition governments. It would be an adjustment for our politicians, no question, but uh, they do just as well. Thanks for the question. Uh, <clears throat> Terry Shellington, thank you, Harold, for your presentation. Uh, immensely thoughtful and uh, helpful. Um, I, I was relieved to hear you say that you didn't think we get proportional representation because I, uh, I, I, I'm not a supporter of that at all. But Art Sanford's uh, question raised a follow-up question in my mind. The, uh, he, Art was talking about uh, the advisability of runoffs, uh, say, two weeks later. Mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> the, the majoritarian... Uh, proposal in which I think you give preferences right. uh, was, was declared by one critic to be per first past the post on steroids. And you, in your remarks, underlined that it would seem to favor the liberals. And it's no wonder that they would be in favor of it. Uh, would the, the idea of runoffs two weeks later tend to feed into the same uh, thing? Or, or does, uh, as it functions in practice, is it different? Um. It tends to, so when we, we have a measure we call the measure of disproportionality, which we use to look at how accurately um, electoral systems are translating votes into seats. And we basically find that the single member plurality, the first past the post system, runoff systems and the alternative vote all do pretty much equally badly. Uh, so it doesn't improve that correspondence much at all. Uh, so it, what tends to happen is the runoff tends to be between the top two parties who you saw on those graphs tend to be the conservatives and the liberals and you've seen for most of Canadian elections those two parties are the ones that have benefited from the system. 
So the argument is that this would um, just enhance that or exacerbate that. So if you care about a more close correspondence between seats and votes, and that is one of the mandates of the Electoral Reform Committee, it's mandate number one, to investigate a system that does that better, this doesn't do it. And a runoff system wouldn't do much better. The main difference, the, one of the arguments for the alternative vote and for a runoff system is that it's going to try to encourage parties to be a little more cooperative. So the argument is that the Conservatives essentially governed for nine years trying to polarize we're over here, the defendants of freedom and justice and democracy, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, and all the evil coalition parties, right? The Liberals, the New Democrats, the Green Party, and their separatist allies in the Bloc Québécois, and they're all, and so they were all put into one camp. The argument is under an alternative vote system, that's not smart for the Conservatives to do, right? You want to convince Liberals, Liberal supporters, you know, Okay, you, you don't like the, uh, you might not, we might be your first choice, but here's why we're a good second choice. Here are the things we have in common with the Liberals. So that's the argument. And the argument is a runoff system will do that too. The difference though is that in the alternative vote system, they have to do that leading up to the first ballot. The argument is in a runoff, you spend a lot of time highlighting your divisions with other people and then you've got two weeks to say, oh no, I didn't mean all that stuff I meant before the first ballot. No, we can really work together because you've got to reach out to the supporters of other parties. So it's where that compromise takes place. Now the research isn't entirely clear how much consensus that this generates. Um, generally when we get, when we talk about the effects of electoral systems on things other than the mechanical translation uh, of votes into seats, the claims start to get a little more speculative. So one of the things in New Zealand, even under the PR system, they argued, well, this will encourage politicians to be more cooperative because they have to form coalitions. Politicians are still politicians, right? They still want to win. They combat, they fight with each other. They're competing with each other. And we, I think, should be a little bit skeptical about claims that electoral systems are going to fundamentally alter human nature. They're just electoral systems. I think they're important. But they're not that important. Thank you. <coughs> Uh, hi, my name is Carol Sakia. I wanted to uh, further on the New Zealand situation. They have uh, special seats <laughs> designated for uh, Maori. Yes. And I don't know if that's federal, municipal, or maybe both. But could you speak to that, especially thinking of Canadian context? Um, okay. That that's a great question. That's a whole other uh, whole other issue. Um, so one of the things in New Zealand they have done is special electoral systems for, uh, for the Maori, for the uh, Aboriginal peoples of New Zealand. And um, so they've always had guaranteed representation. One of the interesting things that happened shortly after they switched is one of the leaders of the party that ended up holding kind of the balance of power was actually Maori. Uh, so he actually managed to take leadership of, one of, and, and of these parties and actually managed to advance a lot of causes. Now in the Canadian case, I haven't seen a lot of serious discussion about this. We, a lot of our issues about the electoral representation of Canada's Indigenous peoples, we run into th the very big question about whether Canada's Indigenous peoples are part of the Canadian state, are they citizens of the state or citizens of their own nation? So are we part of one nation or two? How do we structure that? So 
for a lot of, uh, for many Aboriginal leaders, but not all Aboriginal leaders in Canada, they would argue, well, they have their own governments, and they're going to deal on a government to government, on a nation to nation basis, not as MPs in the other nation. It would be like saying, for, for some uh, Aboriginal peoples, it would be like saying, well, Canada has an important relationship with the United States. We need to elect our own members of Congress in the US. And we would say, no, we have a prime minister who's going to represent our interests. So this hasn't been something we've looked at very seriously in Canada, and there hasn't been a lot of push because of the way we've conceptualized our relationship between the sort of mainstream Canadian society and indigenous Canadian society as being a nation to nation. Great question. Thank you. Um, my name is Patricia Boswell, and I'd uh, like to give you, um, to get a, an answer from you on process. You did a wonderful job with those bar graphs, and let us hypothesize that in the election right now, uh, that, that isn't taking place, but we're hypothesizing, uh, Elizabeth May's party, the Green Party, gets 15% of the national vote, but only Elizabeth May goes back in. What is the process for then getting the 15% represented of the Green Party? Does she just pick her favorite people that she'd like with her, or how does it go? Okay, so under a uh, proportional representation, but especially a mixed member system, what would happen is, is the, end, the Green Party would come up with lists probably for every province, but it depends a bit on how you implement it. There's lots of different ways to do it. But the simplest way, the Green Party would give a list of, here's um, a list of candidates for Alberta. So I think in the simulation I ran in Alberta, the Green Party deserved one or two seats, and they didn't elect anybody at the local level. So we would say, okay, who are the top two people on the list? And they would go to top them up. So you'd choose them off of lists. So that is absolutely the, w the way it would, would go under an MMP system. But would it be the Green Party that chose it, or would it be yeah, fe it a federal decision? Uh, no, it would be usually, in most systems, the party sets the list order. There are systems, though, that could allow voters to say, okay, if I voted for the Green Party, I could rank the people on the list, and so voters can change the order that the party puts forward if they want to. Some systems allow that. So there's a lot of variables in how you can do it. But generally, it's not that we allow Elections Canada to choose which candidates. The party decides who they're going to nominate for those lists and the order in which they go. Knut Peterson is the name. Um, Harold. Thank you very much for coming today. It was very timely, I think, to talk about this. Um, failing electoral voting uh, reform on the voting part, do you see uh, liberals maybe, and you alluded to it a little bit on your, in your presentation, that make it easier for people to vote? Uh, students at universities and colleges, for example, get the young people out to vote by making it easier for them to vote. Do you think uh, they will maybe tweak those rules a little bit instead of not being able to figure out the other one? Okay, uh, so most of the attention and my attention uh, in this presentation has been on the electoral system question because it's a bigger one. The electoral reform committee that was struck in June actually has three things you're supposed to look at. The electoral system, the potential use of online voting and whether voting should be made mandatory or not. So you would be legally compelled to vote. Those are the three things they're supposed to look at. Now, uh, the first one is obviously the big one. Um, they are interested in online voting and that they are mandated to look at that. 
Uh, when, when I was at the committee, I'd done some research on Canadian attitudes towards online voting. And uh, what we find in the survey research that we've done is Canadians are actually pretty interested in voting online. Uh, in our surveys, about 76% of people said they were very likely to vote online if that was a possibility. And even among those people who didn't vote said they were very likely to vote online, about half of them. Uh, interestingly enough, though, a, a lot of our respondents said voting was very voting online was very risky, but a majority of those people were still very likely to vote online, even though it was risky. Uh, because, and the reason is, is because the risk doesn't accrue; they don't face the penalties or disadvantages of it. Um, so I know that the committee they asked me a lot of questions about that, and the big thing that I held up and as a problem, and I think is a problem with the question of online voting has to do with security, right? There's the big question of, well, are the systems secure? How do we, we're worried about hacking, right? The Democratic National uh, Committee experienced this around their convention. There's lots of state-sponsored hacking going on. Do we want to open up that can of worms? But a second, and I'd argue an, an even more serious issue, has to do with identity verification. Uh, how do you know that the person casting the vote is actually that person? Now, usually we do that through pin numbers and, uh, logins, we have all kinds of elaborate sorts of systems that we do to preserve integrity of things like a bank account. But if it's for a vote, and if you're somebody who doesn't really care, and somebody says, oh, I'll give you five bucks for your login information. So there, there are issues around identity verification. The big thing that I wanted to, that I highlighted to them is that I think there is an argument to make voting more accessible and easy. And Mark Maynard, uh, the chief electoral officer, released a report yesterday where he highlighted the, just the incredibly cumbersome process, like the fact that you go in and bring your voter card and they have to manually look up your name and then cross it off by hand. Well, we're using the same system we used 20, 30 years ago. He said, why don't we have a barcode that we scan, right? But we don't. Um, so there's a lot of process things like that that I think we'll see come out. Um, the thing I wanted to highlight is make those kind of things easier. If you do online voting, do it, but do not do it at the expense. Don't shut down the number of polling stations. That physical process is very secure and it works well for most people. I don't want to disenfranchise people who can't figure out how to make those systems work for them. So I agree. I think we that's probably where we're going to see some movement. I don't think the mandatory voting thing will go anywhere, but I think we'll see some things about accessibility of the voting process. Thanks, Keith. I'm Mary Shillington. Thanks, Harold. This has been very interesting and answered some of my questions. I'm not necessarily where my husband's at as far as the uh, proportional. You can, you can convince them. <laughs> well, we, we'll have further discussions. <laughs> let's put it that way. Uh, in, interesting uh, about the Conservatives wanting uh, the referendum. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that and, and what what you suspect the question would actually be, because that would be a key piece. What, what would the question be and how clear would it be for people and would people actually do the referendum? Would they actually vote and how would they do that? Okay, great, great question. That's, that's, very, that, that's the million dollar question is what, who writes the referendum question and what does it look like? Like I mentioned in New Zealand, there was a very, a, quite a transparent attempt to muddy the waters by putting lots of options. In the cases where we have had referendums, so in um, British Columbia, the process they went through is they had a citizens' assembly. You might be aware the city of Lethbridge is doing one around uh, the question of whether city councillors should be full-time or not and how they should be compensated. But that was pioneered in the province of British Columbia around electoral reform because the government realized 
there's a bit of a conflict of interest for governments to write their own rules about what the electoral system should look like. So they randomly selected two people from every constituency, got them together. They basically did, learned about electoral systems, discussed with each other about what they thought were the th principles that should guide the choice of electoral system, went back, consulted in their communities, came back, shared that, deliberated, make, made a recommendation, and that's what went to a referendum. So it was just one thing, and that was put in the hands of citizens. Uh, Prince Edward Island's referendum right now, um, you can take a look at, at the question, but they're basically giving people a whole bunch of different options. Again, it kind of muddies the waters and confuses things. So the negotiation over what the question would look like, I agree, is big, and I, that would reveal a lot about what the government wants to do. If they're serious about it, you come down with, here's the, here's the best alternative we have, current system versus the alternative. If you want to complicate things, you give lots of alternatives. Uh, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think that's, that's a tremendous point that you've made. Okay, and, and this will be our last question. Hi, Harold. Thank you very much for your presentation today. My name is Mike Pine. Um, this issue is representative of, of the bigger picture. Like, government is extremely complicated. Most citizens are not engaged. That's why we live in a representative democracy. Now, I, my question deals with the, the, the ethical reasoning that we should have a referendum at all. It, this is such a complicated issue, and you've brought that out very well today. It's very complicated. Most citizens don't know it, and if they're asked to vote on it, they're going to vote on party lines or whatever. It's, it's been said that if we were all conservatives, we'd still be beating our women over the heads with a club and dragging them by the hair back to the cave. They don't change, right? It's too important an issue, right? So uh, we live in a representative democracy. We have experts like you to guide our politicians. Shouldn't they be the ones that make the decision on this, period? That's my question. That's, and that's an excellent question and really gets at the crux of the debate over process. I agree with you. I, I mean, I would love to say, oh, we should just give all the power to people like me to make these decisions, but <laughs> my attempts to make that argument don't seem to go very far. I don't, they don't even go very far in my own home with my children, let alone with uh, the government. Um, but, but I agree with you, that really is the problem. What I'm pointing to when I say the public engagement, that, that's really the heart of the problem of public engagement. There is a demand and an expectation for public engagement. We might not like it, we might point to the limitations and the problems and the inherently small c conservative bias that that introduces into the system, but it is a reality, things have changed. Back when we did electoral reform at the beginning of the 20th century and throughout the early parts of Canadian history, it was funny, it was just, they just packed a passed acts of the legislature and it was done. There, but we have changed our expectations of citizenship around these fundamental questions that citizens have a right to be consulted. So to me, the challenge is to come up with a process that requires citizens to do the homework. Like, you, you are people here who come and you pay attention, you come to things like this and learn, and I suspect most of you take some effort to learn things, and many of you are, I know from having conversations with you, are modest about your understanding of current events, and falsely modest, I would argue, in many cases, because you do pay attention. And it frustrates me that somebody could cancel your vote out just because they react to something 
just knee-jerk, and that really bothers me, and that to me is the danger of a referendum. So, the, so I, I like processes like a citizens' assembly that really encourages people to learn, right? They had to read, in the citizens' assembly in British Columbia, I'm the one in Ontario, they had to read the same textbook I signed to my students on electoral system. They brought in the person who wrote the textbook. They brought in experts to come do presentations to help them learn and understand. But then they were given the tools to make an informed decision and to discuss with each other. And I think that's a great process. The problem I have with the process that's been established is, again, the timeline. We've ruled out a lot of those options. There isn't a lot of time for a really informed kind of public debate. And, and I think that's a shame because uh, there are some good questions to be asked about our electoral system. And I don't, I don't mind someone like Terry, uh, to pick on Terry because he came out and said where he stood and he said he disagreed with me publicly. And I have no issue with that. If somebody has studied and thought about this and reaches a different conclusion, I have nothing but respect for that. But I get frustrated about processes that don't require two people to do the homework and allow those people to cancel out the work of people like you who do that. So I agree, you've, you've hit on the problem. And I wish I had a nice, tidy solution. I don't. It's the central problem, I think, in this whole debate. And thank you for pointing it out. I think that's a good note to end on.